everybody, my name is John, for those of you who do not know me. And what a cracking passage this is, isn't it? Um, this is actually one of the most perplexing chapters in the, in the book of Mark, if not the most perplexing one, and probably one of the most perplexing ones in the entire New Testament. And so I'm going to try and figure out what's actually going on here. And so why don't I pray for us, and then we're going to get started. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to come before you, realizing that your word is the one that cuts all of our hearts. And I just pray that you would be able to minister your work to all of our spiritual lives as we are nourished and encouraged and corrected by the word that we're going to hear this morning. And I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen. The vast majority of you guys would have still been alive 10 years ago, and so you probably would remember this, right? Uh, But do you remember when people actually thought that the world was going to end at around this time 10 years ago, on the 21st of December 2012, right? There were theories and beliefs that a sequence of apocalyptic events would occur on that day, right? And, and that day was determined based on some arbitrary ancient calendar, right? And astrologists would spend years studying the orbits of planets to wait for this galactic alignment to happen, okay? And other people sort of speculated that a planet would collide on Earth and would all be sucked into a black hole and the Earth's core would overheat and explode, right? And so it would be a day of eventful things happening, right? And... Uh, The only reason I remember all this is because I was in first year uni back then in 2012 and I was hearing all of these apocalyptic theories that these students would make during uni and I thought it was very unusual and very whack, but I understood the appeal to it and I started to believe it uh, because if any of you guys have studied civil engineering, uh, you realize that the lectures and the classes are as dry as concrete, I'll say that much, and so... By the end of that year, I was so sick of study that I really wouldn't have minded if the world would end at that point. Okay? And when those predictions fell through, I was mildly disappointed. <laughs> You'd hate to see it. Now, these rumors, they actually existed a while ago as well, because uh, back in high school, <laughs> a couple of mates of mine, uh, and I also went and watched a movie a couple of years ago before 2012, and it was called... 2012, okay? I don't know whether you guys have watched that movie either, right? It's, a, it's an action-packed movie. Action-packed movie. Uh, there was earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, floods, you know, every natural disaster happening all at the same time, okay? People running and screaming. It's a great movie for the kids to watch. I highly recommend it, okay? <laughs> uh, but, but my point here is that these theorists would interpret all of these signs as marks of the end of history, right? They would interpret all of these as marks of a new beginning and a new era. And now, given that we're still living here today, 10 years after those predictions, I think is living proof of the fact that those predictions and theories are absolute bogus. And even though most of us would spend uh, not even a second trying to speculate on what the end of the world is going to be like or when it will happen, I think these inclinations to be curious about what the state of our world will be, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, you know, I think that fascination and that desire 
to know all of these things comes from an understandable place, doesn't it? Because as we're going to read from this chapter here, we're going to see that at the beginning of that section of Mark, chapter 13, right, the disciples were also curious about the things that Jesus had predicted will happen in the distant future. Now, if you've got a lot of questions about this text, about the end of the age, and what exactly is the abomination of desolation, and what are we to anticipate when all these things are going to happen, truth be told, I don't have all the answers for you in the sermon. And my approach to this text this morning is not to get too bogged down in the details. But one thing is for certain from the text, and this is what I want to draw your attention to. And it's this, that Jesus makes certain that he will come again. Okay, Jesus makes certain that he will come again at his second coming. And so we must stay on guard at all times, right? Jesus will certainly return a second time. And so we must stay on guard. And I think Mark has communicated this idea by the way he's demarcated, the way he's split the sections up here in this chapter here. Because as we're going to examine Jesus' discourse with the disciples, he talks about two separate yet very connected events in the future. Right? He predicts the, the destruction of Jerusalem from verses 1 to 23. You see that in your Bibles there, right? Verses 1 to 23. And then he predicts the end of the age in verses 24 and 27, right? So keep that in mind because we're going to try and piece all these things together to understand the connection between these two apocalyptic events under these three headings. You see it on your outlines, right? You can see that Jesus tells the prophecy of the end of the Jewish order. That's my first point. Which is inevitably a, a symbol that signifies the end of the present order. That's my second point. And then we're going to discuss the implications on how to live with purpose and intentionality. In light of being in the end game. And that's my final point. Okay? And so let's, let's begin with my first point. Come with me to verse 1 as you see there. Verse 1, okay. Having sat and watched people tie their money into the temple treasury from uh, the end of chapter 12, okay. Jesus and the disciples finally leave the temple. And the author Mark here gives us a scene where as they were leaving, right, the disciples would have turned back to this temple and they would have been mesmerized by the architecture that they were seeing and they would have said to Jesus, Wow, Jesus, look at, look at this temple. Look at the stones. Isn't it magnificent? Isn't it impressive? Look at it, right? And what I want to highlight here is that the disciples were not tourists, okay? They were not tourists. They were not on holiday. They weren't trying to find all the greatest attractions that Jerusalem had to offer, okay? They were locals. And so they would have seen this temple a billion times. And so, what's the big deal? Well, what you see here, what we need to see here, what we need to understand here, is that the temple was viewed as Israel's national pride and crown jewel. You see that? The temple was seen as Israel's national uh, pride and crown jewel. The temple was the focal point on which religious life of the Jews was built around. And, and Mark had alluded to this already when he was service leading at the beginning, right? He's alluded to this already, and, and um, what I want to talk about here is, you know, one of the great mysteries of Grace Bond Lickham 
right, that I've never been able to solve is who on earth thought it was a good idea to paint this building purple? Okay? That's one of the things that I've never been able to fathom. Uh, no offense to those of you who like the color purple, but I think it's a bit of an atrocious color on this building. Okay? But uh, aside from that fact, you know what I've noticed when I tell people that I attend Grace Point Presbyterian? Uh, a lot of people end up recognizing the church that I go to and they say, oh, Grace Point, that's the purple building, isn't it? It's the purple building in the corner. And, you know, that's, that's fascinating because our church building is very recognizable and everyone seems to know where we are and where we worship because of our precarious choice of color, right? And similar to that, you would recognize the grandeur of this temple from afar, and that's what we need to understand about the temple, everyone. That the temple was a symbol of God's protection and provision over his people, the Jews. It was a symbol, a sign of God's protection and provision over his people. It, uh, the temple was a symbol that God, the creator of the universe, resides and dwells among the people of Israel. And, and what other nation is able to make that claim? That the presence of the Lord is this close to them, with this sort of proximity. No other nation can claim that. And that is why the, Israels, um, the Israelites had so much pride in the temple. And I think that's going to be very helpful for context, right? Keep that in mind, because what Jesus is going to say here is absolutely shocking. Because this is what Jesus says. You see that temple, right? I'm sorry to break it to you, but it's going to get demolished, okay? It's going to get demolished, and now, now if I, I, I know for a fact that if I were to tell some of the ACGers here that Hall 2 is going to get demolished, right? I think I'm going to expect a very different response here, right? They're going to be like, really? When is that going to happen? Uh, do you need help? Right? <laughs> but no, that's, that's not what's happening here, right? The disciples must have been in great shock, okay? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Look, I... I'm not sure if I heard you correctly, but you, you're saying that this majestic and wonderful temple, the place in which we meet with God, the place in which we worship together as God's people, this glorious temple is going to be destroyed? And Jesus says, yes. No one likes surprises, really, right? Not particularly this one. I think when you hear something like this, of this caliber about to happen, it puts you on edge, Right? There are enormous changes that must take place and, and you just don't know whether you'll be able to cope with those changes or whether you're ready for them. And I suspect that the disciples must have felt on edge when they heard of these prophecies concerning the destruction of the temple. And they couldn't help but ask Jesus these two questions in verse 4. Have a look. Verse 4. Firstly, they ask, when will these things happen? And then secondly, they ask, what are the signs when all these things are about to happen? Okay. And so Jesus gives his first response to that first question there. And he answers that in verses 5 to 13. Right? I'm going to summarize it for you guys right now. This is what he says. He firstly tells the disciples when it won't happen. Okay. He, would, he tells the disciples when it won't happen. In other words, he gives us the red herrings. Right? And for those of you who do not know what a red herring is, 
red herrings are signs that distract you. Red herrings are signs that mislead you from the central point. That's what a red herring is, right? They are non-signs. They steal your attention away from what you should actually be looking for. And Jesus gives a list here of red herrings, you know, a list of signs that people have commonly misunderstood to be signs that mark the end of the age, verses 6 to 13, right? Have a look there. Right? The, the appearance of false messiahs, wars, natural disasters, famines, and persecution. Jesus is saying, this ain't it. If you want to know when the destruction of the temple is going to happen, don't make much of these signs. Okay? These signs are red herrings. And isn't it fascinating, as we read this, that based on modern day literature, this is what we often think characterizes the end of the age, right? That if sea levels and global temperatures continue to rise and if conspiracies about World War Three are actually true and if there's a fatal variant of COVID that actually ends up deleting a third of the population, we would actually think that these, chain of, these chains of cataclysmic events mark the apocalypse. That's what we sort of think, right? It, we sort of think these marks uh, the beginning of the end. And Jesus says, no, don't be deceived. What you're seeing in the world right now, wars, natural disasters, famines and all, right? These don't characterize the end of this age, right? All these events characterize the present age that we live in, right? Because we've always had wars, right? What's new? We've always had earthquakes. We've always had people starving. We've always had people being persecuted. And atrocities have always happened uh, across our land. These are all part of the normal course of human history. These are not signs of the end of the age. These are signs that we live in a broken world. Get it? These are not signs that we are going to enter in the end of the world. These are signs that we live in a broken world, right? And that is why verse 7, Jesus says this, do not be alarmed. Okay, verse 7, Jesus says, do not be alarmed. These things must take place, and yet it is not the end. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so Jesus diffuses any possibility of being deceived and distracted by events that happen in our world that actually are misunderstood to be marks of the end of this age. Now, Jesus begins to answer the disciples' second question, right? So in your outlines there, you see the second question. What will be the sign when all these things will take place or when they will happen? And Jesus gives one sign. And Jesus gives one obvious sign that must take place before the destruction of Jerusalem. And here it is. It's the abomination of desolation, verses 14 to 23. Now, I'm not going to go too much into detail because the abomination of desolation is a, it's a highly debated topic in the scholarly world. But what I can say here is that the abomination of desolation is a phrase that comes from the book of Daniel. And it was used to describe the incident where pagan ruler raided the Jewish temple and defiled the holy place, okay? And Jesus is saying that, you know, there was this event that happened in the past in the book of Daniel that was prophesied, and I'm saying that there will be another abomination of desolation that will take place in Roman form in 70 AD. There will be another one, a future one, 
and it's going to be dreadful. It's going to be unlike anything you've ever seen before. This is the sign of the, of the destruction of Jerusalem. And so if you see this sign, you must flee immediately. Right? That is what Jesus is saying here. If there was any sign to cling to, this is the one to look out for. Now, um, let's take a moment uh, here to just pause. Because what I want to say at this point is that the imperative to flee from Jerusalem when the abomination of desolation happens, is not specifically given to us, okay? Uh, Don't hear from me from today thinking that if the abomination of desolation is going to happen in Lincoln, then we ought to flee from Sydney. That's not what I'm saying here, okay? Because you see, this portion of Mark is not meant to speak directly to us, right? In the immediate context of this passage here in which Jesus is speaking to, he is preparing the disciples for the events that were going to take place in their lifetime. Not in our lifetime, in their lifetime. And so it doesn't immediately apply to us, and so that's why I don't want us to think that way. But what I do want us to see here is that Jesus was foretelling not the destruction of just some random building. That's what I want us to get across, right? Because what I mentioned before here is that the temple itself was central to Jewish religious life in ways we don't understand, right? The temple carried tremendous significance for the typical Jew of that time because the, the temple was believed to be the place in which the Jews would restore their communion with God by bringing their sin offerings to him, right? The, the, the temple was seen to be the place in which the Jews would gather in the presence of God and experience his power and blessing. That was what the temple is. And and so you can imagine if the temple falls, then it would have been believed in that time that God has systematically and has definitively abandoned his people. That's what it would have all meant. With the destruction of the temple would have meant the destruction of life for the Jews. It may as well have been the end of the world for the stereotypical Jew living at that time. Because everything they loved and everything they took pride in, everything they depended on, would have been laid to waste. Um, you know, Jesus predicted that this will happen in 70 AD. And 40 years later from the time when he made that prediction, historians have confirmed that the destruction of Jerusalem actually took place. Right. The Romans under Emperor Titus came with battering rams and they infiltrated the city, slaughtering tens and thousands of Jews. Okay? And they burnt that temple to the ground. It was a bloodbath. Right? And that event was a major turning point in Jewish history because Judaism was never the same again after that point. The world as they knew it would change forever. And Jesus speaks to us here that the temple that was destroyed, right? The end of the Jewish order, that is a sign to us that the end of this age, the end of the present order is going to come, right? We too will face that same reality like the Jews. Since Jesus has come to inaugurate a new age, a new kingdom, right? A new covenant, new paradigms for living, the things that we once were familiar with, right? The things that we most dearly cherish will all 
pass away. Everything we know will one day be no more. And so come with me with my second point as Jesus talks about the end of the age, the end of the present order. We're at our second point now on our outline. So look with me to verses 24 to 27. Verses 24 to 27. Jesus says, But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Here we are given a tiny glimpse of what will happen to the world when Jesus, the Son of Man, returns to establish his rule and reign over his creation. The orbits of the planets will collapse, that's what Jesus says. And the principles of uniformity that govern the stability of our world will crumble. All things as we know it will disintegrate. It would be an otherworldly experience. And we will see Jesus floating in the clouds, right, commanding all of his angels to fly across every corner of the world to gather his people from every place in the world. It's hard to fathom, isn't it? Right? It's hard to fathom. But Jesus will return. He will return to establish his kingdom once and for all. And I wonder whether the reason why we don't often think about the reality of the second coming, the end of the world, is because we find it so difficult to just conceive the notion that all things in this world will one day perish. Yeah, I wonder, why the, I wonder whether we find it so hard to think about these things because we just don't think the world will ever end, right? And I think that's pretty interesting because the second coming uh, is not new to us, right? What the scriptures today are positing for us with regards to the second coming, I don't think this is anything new because every second Sunday, we pray the Lord's Prayer together, right? And what does it say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And so I think we have a general idea of the end that is to come and what Jesus will come and do at his second coming. But I think for many of us here, there's a, there's a cognitive dissonance. Uh, let me explain what I mean by that. There's a cognitive dissonance here. Uh, what I mean is that our beliefs about Jesus's coming don't often align with our priorities in life. You know, we are, Christians by conviction, but we live as functional atheists in practice. And I think that's often seen in the way that we get caught up in all the things that we're emotionally invested in, right? In, in our personal endeavors in this present reality. I think we've become enchanted by the promises and the treasures of this world. And I think so much of our bandwidth, our energy is taken up by our ambitions and our desires, Right? Now, to be fair, I think we do care about our futures, right? Um, we, we're concerned about the immediate futures before us. We care about what happens five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. But I think when it comes to the distant future, there is an air of apathy about it. There's an air of apathy concerning the time when Jesus will return. Uh, I caught up with a bunch of Christian friends the other day at a social and I was chatting with one female friend in particular, and 
she was telling me of a very, very busy season that she was in. Uh, she was working full-time, long hours, okay? And she was studying three subjects during this postgraduate degree all at the same time. And she just, had, uh, she just finished her exams recently. And that is an insane workload for those of you who have never worked full-time and also studied full-time. That is insane, okay? And she was knackered afterwards. And, you know, I just, I just asked her, like, no one's forcing you to do this, right? And so what drives you to do all this? What are you looking for? And she told me that she wants to increase her profile, right? She, she didn't want to waste a single opportunity that was given to her, and she wanted to reach her fullest potential. Does that describe you? I was chatting with another mate. Uh, he was expressing to me how discontent and dissatisfied he was in his job. And he, truth be told, he hasn't even been there for that long. And so you know, I asked him, what are you looking for? And then he said to me, that he's looking for meaning, for value, for satisfaction in his work. Does that describe you? And oh boy, you know, uh, I, I don't know why this happens, but I've even had guys come up to me and they ask me, John, John, I, I need you to tell me straight, right? Why do girls not like me, right? <laughs> why do girls not like me? What's wrong with me? What do I need to change about myself, right? And, and I'm just like, I, I don't know why you're asking me, right? <laughs> Look at me. Good grief. But, 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 but in my mind, I'm, I'm asking the question, what are you looking for? Now, I'm not saying it is wrong to find opportunities for personal development, right? Don't hear me say that. I'm not saying it is wrong to find enjoyment in your work. I'm not saying that either. And it's not wrong to find companionship either. But whatever we are looking for, whatever we're thinking about, and whatever we're dreaming about most of the time, and what generally consumes our thoughts and energy, is that not a reflection of our values and priorities in life, right? That what we often dream about and think about and what consumes our thoughts and energies, is that not a reflection of our values and priorities in life? And my point is, I think a lot of us here are fixated on desiring those things so much. We're so focused on the, the tangibility of this present reality. So much so that that is all we ever think about. We all seem to be so busy and restless, right? We live almost as though that this world is all that there is, right? And that this world isn't really going anywhere. And, and this world isn't heading towards any sort of direction. In fact, we think this world is here to stay. That's what we think. That's, that's generally our perspective, right? I don't think we would ever confess this with our mouths, right? That this is what we believe. But I think deep down in a subconscious level, we all believe this to some degree. Because it is shown by the way that we invest our lives into things in this world as though that they will last forever in eternity. But the reality from Scripture says this, that Jesus is the one who determines the course of creation. And he sets the course on where this world is heading. And he says in verse 31 that heaven and earth will pass away. Have a look there, right? Heaven and earth will pass away. The present world as we know it will disintegrate. That is where it's heading. Now, uh, is it heading towards anarchy and utter oblivion? Well, that's the question, right? 
And, and Jesus says this, that when the end of the age comes, he will gather his elect, right? In other words, he will bring and gather his people onto himself. Have a look at verse 27 right there, right? Verse 27. This is the verse that I want you guys to have a look at. Seems insignificant, but it is it's utterly profound. Highlight this verse in your Bibles, right? The gathering of God's people so that they can commune with God for all eternity. Do you not know what this is meant to be? This is meant to be a picture of redemption at its fullness. See, this is a picture of final deliverance and hope. This is the vision of the future that we all need, right? Picture it in your minds, right? This is the fulfillment of the grand promises that God has made to his people that at the end of time, Jesus, as the new temple, will be the place where we will dwell with him forever. That's what's happening here. Jesus predicts the, the destruction of the temple so that a new one will be built. Okay? That's the, that's the connection there. He, he predicts the destruction of the temple so that a new one will be built. Jesus is preparing a place for us where we will be welcomed into his home. And this is a home where we will find rest from our restlessness. We will find freedom from our bondage to sin and suffering. His coming will mean the end of our worldly burdens. And his coming will be the destruction on which all of our heartfelt desires for protection and provision all point to. And I think the reason why we fail to see this, even, even as Christians, is because we don't dream enough, Right? And so ask yourself this question, right? What would you choose to do now if you knew the world would end tomorrow? Right? What would you choose to do now if the world would end tomorrow, right? Would you still lose sleep over your investment portfolio, right? Uh, would you still say, oh boy, my stocks are going up right now. Nice, right? Or, or, or would you still say, oh wow, look, look at my magnificent Subaru Rexy right here, right? Isn't that beautiful? Right? Would you still be losing sleep over that girl that just doesn't like you? Right? Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away. The end of the present order will pass away. I think if we all knew that the world will end on that following day, I think my suspicions would be that you probably would not be as emotionally invested in those things. Right? I, I don't think you would stop caring about them because I think you should still care about them. But I think you'll care about them less, right? And that is what perspective does for you. It makes you wise. It makes you ponder on what's important. It makes you ponder on what's essential and what's eternal. The end of the present order has come and will come. Not has come, will come. Okay? And Jesus will bring a new order and it will be glorious. May that vision be instilled in our hearts and minds as we discern how to live rightly in light of that reality, okay? Because this is the end game now. We're at our final point. Come with me to verses 32 to 30, uh, 37. Verses 32 to 37. According to scripture, world history has finally entered in, in, into its final stage, okay? This is the end game. We live between the age of the present and in the age that is to come. 
And we don't actually know when Jesus will bring about this new age. Because we see then verse 32, he says, about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. The Bible says that even if the Son himself does not know that day or that hour, then don't presume that you know when he's going to come. Okay? The day of the second coming can come at any given moment. It will happen when everyone will least expect it. Okay? And Jesus says there will be no sign for you to know when that will happen, when he will come back. And, and so therefore, verse 23, he says we are to be on guard and to be alert. You see that? Verse 33. And so what does it mean to be on guard? Well, Jesus gives us an illustration here in verse 34. We'll keep reading on there. Jesus says, it's like a man who goes away and leaves his home. That's, that's the master. And he puts his servants in charge of the home. He's each been given a task to do and to keep watch for the master to come home. Jesus is that master who has delegated to us believers here an important task. He's, he's given us a task here as believers, as his servants, to be fruitful and to be productive until he returns. And so the question is, how do we live as servants during these unusual times? How do we play the end game well? Well, here are some things I want you guys to ponder on as, we, well, as, I, as I extend the usage of this analogy of the servant here, right? Um, I've left the blank here because I was st- still trying to figure out which words I was going to use. But here are the three words, right? Concentration. Stewardship. And anticipation. I'll repeat that once more. Concentration, stewardship, and anticipation. Let me talk about the first one, right? The first one is concentration. A servant of the Lord Jesus must have the ability to concentrate, to remain focused on the task at hand, to not be sleeping on the job, right? I know that for some of you who work in certain jobs, that's very hard to do, okay? Especially if you work from home. And uh, for those of you guys who work from home, I, I know. Uh, you, you, take la- you take naps longer than you should be during those work hours. And, and here's the thing. None of your managers really know whether you're actually taking your nap during those work hours, right? But that's not going to work with Jesus. Even though he is away, he knows what you're doing. And so it ain't going to work. Um, and... You know, I think one of the most common ways that we enter into this spiritual slumber as a Christian is when we become complacent about our sin. And I think at times we can become quite desensitized to the heinousness of our sin right? and how much it, de- is, it de- displeases our Father and our Master. And I think we procrastinate a lot on our sanctification at times. And so we mustn't be complacent about our sin, church. We must stay alert at all times, focusing on the task at hand, the task of pleasing Him, of making His glory known to, um, to everyone in all that we do, and presenting ourselves, our holiness, before Jesus when He returns. So that's the first one. Okay, that's the first mark I want to talk about. Now let's talk about the second one, stewardship. Okay? The servant of the Lord must also be a good steward of His gifts and opportunities. Nowadays, Workplace theft is very common, okay? 
Workers often still offer supplies, stationery and whatnot. And I think that there is an equivalent when it comes to Christian servanthood. And that's called bad stewardship. Because just imagine with me that when the master finally leaves his home, the servant decides, I'm going to reconfigure my master's house, right? Change everything. He makes the place his own. He decides to sell a couple of his master's possessions on Facebook Marketplace, okay? Pockets the money for himself. And then he uses that money to indulge in his own, uh, in his own pleasures, his own pursuits. Maybe he decides to start up a new side hustle when what he should actually be doing is doing the work that his master's given to him. And don't we often effectively do that by the way we squander our God-given gifts and resources, right? That we often heavily presume that all the things that we've been given by God is for our own benefits and purposes and not for his. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't spend any money on your own interests, right? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that I don't think we often filter our decision-making process through the lens of our own calling as servants of the Most High, right? What I mean is we don't often consult with God in prayer about the choices that we make in life. We don't often consult with God about the way we spend our money, the way we spend our time, the way that we invest um, ourselves into, right? And I think we're often more concerned about our relationships, our careers, our investment portfolios, our hobbies, and we get so emotionally attached to these things uh, as servants of the Most High, may we not be caught with mismanagement of His resources. Let's steward His resources well. And so ask yourself this question, right? In, in light of our Master's return, how can I utilize my gifts and resources well to accomplish His purposes? Right? In light of our Master's return, how can I utilize our gifts and resources to accomplish His purposes? I don't know what it looks like for you exactly, but this might be a question about where you're spending your time. It might be a question about how you're spending your money. It might be a question about the value you're bringing to the lives of people with your gifting and training. It might be a question about who are you currently investing your life into. So that's the second thing I want to say. And now the last thing I want to say is anticipation. A proper servant of the Lord Jesus is someone who anticipates his return. And so here's a question, right? Are you a servant that's excited for the master to return? Or are you someone who's apathetic about his return? Because they are two fundamentally different postures that I think mark the difference between a servant of the Lord Jesus and a hired hand, okay? And because the hired hand will only do what he gets paid to do. And he doesn't give a rat's about the person who contracted him, right? But the servant of the Lord, Jesus, waits with anticipation for his master to come back. Because he knows his master will return, and so he aims to please him in all that he does. He focuses on what he's called to do. He capitalizes on every opportunity to do good works that bring glory to him, He ensures that the whole place is tidy for the return of the master and he waits with longing for his arrival. And so if you're a Christian here sitting here today, but you're not excited about the second coming, about the the arrival of our master, 
I, I don't think you have a rich and saturated vision of what the master has prepared for you. Because when Jesus comes back, he will prepare and, and bring us to a place that he's been preparing for us all along. Right? He is bringing us to a place that he's preparing for us all along. It is a kingdom. It is a temple. It is a place where we can call home. Right? Where every burden is lifted. Where every tear will be wiped. And where every longing will be fulfilled. Be excited for the return of Jesus. Right? These are the three marks of a servant that is prepared for the end game. And let me say this, that you know, I think all of you guys here in this room, oh, a whole bunch of you guys are some of the hardest working people I know, right? And I think all of us know how to concentrate when you know you need to get things done, right? And all of us here have been given God-given gifts and opportunities presented to us. And all of us long and anticipate for something. We're all waiting for something. And so the points that I want you guys to ponder on as I wrap up is this. Are you concentrating on the right priorities in light of the end game? Or are you focusing on the wrong things all along? Are you stewarding your God-given gifts well? Or are you mismanaging his resources? Now that's, a, that's another thing to think about. And are you waiting for the master to return with a deep sense of anticipation? You know, these are the questions that we should reflect on as we wrap up our sermon today. Church, may the Lord not find us sleeping in our beds when he returns. May he not find the entire house in disarray. May he find us working diligently for his causes so that when he comes, we will be vindicated and that we will receive our eternal heavenly reward and to, to be able to hear the words of him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. It will all be worth it in the end. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for the word that we got to hear. Uh, it was a word that is challenging to us, especially as we um, are not accustomed to reading apocalyptic literature in this way. But whatever sort of confusions we may have about this text, may this point be clear to us that you are returning real soon. Uh, and Lord, you have not given us any sign to indicate when you will do that. So help us to stay alert and to be on guard at all times as we continue to live in this life in the end game. Father, we often are tempted to live by principles, priorities that do not align with yours. And as a result, we often do spend a lot of time on things we shouldn't be spending our time on. And, and, and Father, we, we ask for repentance in those times and help us to stay on track with what we are called to do as servants. Help us to be productive, to be fruitful, and to live lives that please you during this time. And I pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.